Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 16, The Impact of COVID-19 on Pupils and Student Teachers with Professor Emma-Jane Milton and Dr Alex Morgan. Hello and a warm welcome back to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, where we find ourselves recording in person with outside guests. The uh, podcast is coming back. We've been on the road and now we're getting people in to join us, which is really nice. And um, we have never actually met our two lovely guests in person in the flesh. So this is quite a novel experience for us, Tom, isn't it? I don't think we have actually met other than on a screen, have we? So we should probably fess up to who we have with us today. Now, Now, this kind of needs a a drum roll before I uh, (laughs) introduce our first guest. I would like to introduce you to Professor Emma-Jane Milton. Milton. Oh my goodness, I should probably say it right, shouldn't I? (laughs) Professor Emma-Jane Milton, welcome. Thank you. And congratulations. Thank you very much. Do you want to just tell us just where, where you're based, just a little potted history for us? Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Emma. I'm Emma Jane Milton, and I am currently an academic at Cardiff University. And I suppose I've, I, well, I've been there nine years, and my main focus has been looking at educational practice. So I worked, I came into Cardiff University to work on the Masters in Educational Practice for NQTs. And ever since then, I've been very focused on professional learning and really enabling and supporting teachers to engage in quality mentoring conversations, ways of working to support their professional learning, and a real deep focus, critical focus on their pedagogical practices. Before that, I was a, a teacher and a head teacher, and then uh, before that, I had a completely different career in theatre and TV. So uh, that's me. We welcome thespians in this room, don't we, Tom? Me too. I didn't know several of those things about you, so that was very interesting. And sitting across the table, hi, my name is Alex Morgan. I work with Emma Jane Milton at Cardiff University. I'm currently program coordinator of the professional doctorate program there but I also spend some of my time working with teachers um, in schools in Wales to support and develop ideas around inquiry and um, how that can support professional learning in schools. So Alex and Emma Jane are members of the Cardiff Partnership with us. That's why we've dragged them up from Cardiff University. We're in partnership with them. They provide research capacity and mentoring and things like that for us um, up here at Cardiff Met. And so we've got a bit of a dual focus in this episode. This is going to be a double bill of episodes in which we present some research, some joint research between our institutions, which will be very interesting. But we're also talking about the IPDA, the International Professional Development Association, which is an organisation that we've presented some of this work at. So Emma Jane, do you want to tell us a little bit about the IPDA? Because this is going to be quite relevant for not only uh, those of us who work in universities, but hopefully our colleagues in school as well. Yeah, I'm privileged enough to be chair of IPDA Cymru, and I also sit on the International Committee. It really is a global association. So we've got associations in Vietnam, Hong Kong, Palestine, America, Australia, of course, also across the four home nations. We really work in a very collaborative, collegiate way. And the primary focus of the work of this association is thinking about professional learning, professional development, teacher education, 
practitioner education and, and just thinking about how we get supported in what we do to make us even better in terms of thinking about our, our practice in whatever educational context that, that might be. So one of the wonderful things about IPDA is there are educators from every possible field, discipline and, and age and phase. And so that's a real beauty of the association in terms of the way it works because it really enables you to think quite broadly about practices. It enables you to get different and alternate perspectives on things. And it's the most friendly academic environment, if you like, that I've ever come across. People really are fascinated, interested, curious about each other's work and, and are keen to learn. And I think that, that for me is the essence of why it's such a, a, a great association and, and one that is worth considering joining and thinking about what, what advantages it can bring you in your own context because it's a really great place to think about different practices both within Wales, across the UK and interestingly across the world. And it was certainly an environment that we were welcomed warmly into. And that's what brought us all together, actually, to work closely and to put together um, or to bring our research together in the format of a a symposium. We got together, gosh, it seems like a a long time ago now, but it wasn't that long ago. It was back in November of 2021, um, where we co-presented some research. So do you want to tell us and just give us a little bit of a brief overview of how that research came to be, why it was necessary? Yeah, um, we, we responded to, to a call from Welsh Government to undertake a piece of research for which the original aims and objectives had, had a main focus of understanding the impact of the pandemic-related changes on IT and um, the implications for IT in the future. The, the way that, that panned out and the work we had to do um, had to have some kind of appreciation of actually that, that schools and HEIs are two vital parts of the overall learning environment for those becoming teachers. And so it was really important as part of our project that we had to understand, we had to describe the key changes to learning environments in schools as well as what was happening um, in terms of responding to the pandemic in HEIs. And one of the things that's really important to say up front is this piece of work was commissioned from September 2020 through to April 2021. And I think that's really interesting because that was capturing and what what the piece of research and the project was capturing was what had happened during the first lockdown in schools in Wales and for ITE institutions and their students, what was happening during that autumn period where there was some kind of return to uh, school contexts, and then through the second lockdown up to April 2021. And I think it's important to really be clear about that from the outset because lots of the things that we have found and that we'll discuss this morning have inevitably ebbed, changed, flowed, are, are dynamic because things have continued to change. But equally important is it's not over. And I speak to schools every day, teachers, practitioners, head teachers across the country. And I think I'm acutely aware now more than ever of the a cumulative effect, but b the intense complexity that teachers and school contexts are facing on a daily basis right here, right now at the beginning of March. So before we get down into the detail of what, what was actually found out as part of this research, I suppose it might be worth just really quickly 
explaining how you carried it out because I think any of us that carried out any research during COVID found out that like everything else in life we had to do things slightly differently things were not necessarily very easy so how did you actually go about carrying out this research? Okay well as as we were working as part of the Carter partnership that enabled us to to take a particular approach in terms of our research so it was a mixed method study and it combined co-constructive workshops because we were working with all the stakeholders involved in in the Cardiff Partnership at the time in order to kind of shape and frame the way in which some of the methods that we then adopted would be used within school contexts. We then undertook 40 one-to-one interviews with a range of stakeholders, both from within ITE institutions and partnerships and also practitioners and head teachers and students out in school contexts. And then the second phase of that was a national survey all across Wales where we had 465 responses and those were responses from every type of school you can imagine in Wales, rural, urban, every different language preference, bilingual, Welsh medium, English medium, faith schools, different consortia, different local authorities. So we really worked very hard to get a broad and diverse range of responses so we didn't feel like we were missing particular colleagues or types of schools or types of contexts out. And that was really very important to us. And that second phase, which looked at the online survey, was aimed at both ITE students and the staff concerned with the ITE provision, both within university contexts But equally importantly, um, those people involved in terms of teacher education out in schools, so school mentors, IT coordinators and and head teachers, of course, who would have a view in terms of those ITE experiences. So so I think it's really important to stress we may have done this as a Cardiff partnership. We may be talking today um, from Cardiff Med, but actually the findings of this study are pan Wales. Absolutely. And of course, with such a huge project like this and at a time where so much was affected in education what was the sort of narrower focus of this research and what were you homing in on with regard to the methods that you use and what sort of questions were you asking what did you want to know about well we were commissioned by Welsh Government as one of six projects and ours was a very clear focus in terms of looking at the assessment experiences of IT students and and what had happened and what was happening in terms of of those experiences. However, as Alex said a little bit earlier, what's almost impossible when you're doing that is to isolate that from the experiences of children in school contexts, pupils in school contexts during that period of time because the experiences they were having were going to absolutely and directly inform and shape the experiences the IT students were having at the same time. Yeah, and, and also in terms of assessment, we, we broadly conceptualise that not only as summative assessment, but also as assessment for learning. Yes, thank you. And of course, as we would recommend to all of our student teachers engaging in research, before they start to sort of gather their own um, empirical data we we often well we always ask them to consult the literature and and to find out and of course at this time I, I assume there wasn't a huge amount out there uh, about how we could what kind of critical lens could we view a climate that was 
changing all the time. Um, so so where, where did you even begin uh, with the literature uh, on this? And what did you find? Well, I guess we, we, we started with three key areas. One, what did we know even at that very early stage when we were starting out about the impact of COVID-19 on education provision, equity and learner well-being? And OECD had already done work and very clear, were very clear even at that time that it affected people regardless of nationality, level of education, income or gender. And the same has not been true for its consequences in the sense that they were saying that it had hit the most vulnerable children the hardest. Diane Ray also had done extensive work looking at the stark inequalities in terms of access to technology and equipment and connectivity for children and young people from particular stratas of of our society. And then similarly, the way in which homeschooling was and is interpreted by families and the differences in terms of how that is understood, the willingness and ableness, if you like, of of parents to be able to contribute to that in different ways for all sorts of reasons. And, And not only the reasons that spring to mind in terms of their own education or affluence, but also their roles within society, their jobs, the other demands on their time as well in terms of, and their own relationships with education. So that was one body of evidence we used. The other body of evidence, or another body of evidence we, we spent some time looking at was thinking about the professional formation of teachers, both in Wales but internationally, and what we know about that. So ITE in Wales has undergone significant reform, and one of the things that's been very important around that is this dual relationship between initial teacher education institutions and the school working very closely in partnership and seeing that responsibility as joint. And then we also looked at, you know, what was the nature of early career teachers' experiences? And that very crucial, pivotal period of time as as beginning teachers enter the profession, um, the reality shock that comes with that, the the complex sites that schools are at that point for, for any professional, but particularly newly qualified teachers, how they enact and interpret policies, how they cope with the day-to-day, how the the reality is when, when the buck stops with you and, and no longer are you a teacher on placement in somebody else's classroom, but it's your class. So there were lots of things that we drew on there and also the way in which professional learning is so vital for, for early career professionals in order for them to develop their adaptive expertise. So that was the, the other area. And of course, we looked at what we know about good assessment practices, both formative and summative, um, drawing heavily on, on, on the work of um, Dylan William and others. So we know that at the time that the COVID pandemic hit, there was this enormous shock to all of us, the shock to the system. We all found ourselves in lockdown. Student teachers' placements ended very abruptly, I remember. And pupils were sent home and had to get used to homeschooling, I suppose we'd call it. Just looking at the pupils for a minute, because because we've, we've got these two groups and they're, they're sort of interlinked. But looking at the pupils, we know, we sort of know that, that they had a really rough time. Uh, a lot of them trying, trying to work from home. They lost a lot of their support systems. But you're, you, you found in the research that the way that those, those effects were felt were, were really quite complicated. That the, there was not an equal kind of distribution of pain, as, as you might put it. And that it wasn't necessarily predictable who would be affected most negatively yeah we found that what was um, reported to us 
by the, the school-based Teichi educators and by the students we talked to about the impact of learners they were working with was that the impact on them was complex. It was multifaceted. You couldn't discern from what you knew before exactly who would come out of this the worst. Factors at home that might have conferred resilience before may have disappeared or not conferred that resilience in the same way anymore. And sometimes teachers just didn't know because they weren't in contact with pupils at all or they talked about the assessments they were doing with pupils not being easy to understand where their learners were. So they could set tasks for young children that meant they wanted to go out and collect five things of different colours or do some numerical work. But what they got back on Hub or however it was sent to them could have been done by mum or a sister. It was very hard to discern what the child had actually done. So in that way, opportunities to know exactly what your learners were doing, and in similar ways for older children too, mm. had, had, had disappeared in some ways. Something that really struck me actually about the, the findings with regard to the learners um, was how much classroom practice is dependent and how much of the way that we assess people is dependent on non-verbal cues that we pick up from our learners face to face in the classroom. And with all of that gone and a far greater dependence on, on technology, you know, I, it really resonated with me that we'll never get to a stage, I hope, where digital forms of, of teaching and learning are, are, are dominant. You know, we talk about the takeaways that we'll have from, from COVID and yes, perhaps we have got a more, a bl- more blended learning approach now, but certainly what we pick up um, from those non-verbal cues, particularly with the, with the younger pupils that we serve, are absolutely crucial and vital to helping us help them. Yeah, such an important part, that quality interaction and, and so much information there that feeds into our assessment not only of what they're achieving, but their dispositions towards achieving it, I guess. Um, And that was lost to teachers. And we found a strange thing was happening in that for assessment, there was an absolute real desire to know where children were in their learning, which caused a kind of dominance of a particular kind of assessment. But then a marginalisation of the kind of assessment that needs the quality of interaction we were talking about. And so in that way, there were things missing, if you like, from from that pedagogical experience for children. And the report talks about a hollowing out in terms of pedagogical experience. And I think, Emma, I was just reflecting on what you were saying about the relationships, because if you're teaching for a sustained period of time, either online or when you're back in the classroom from behind the line or at the front, you don't get to be close to your students. You don't get to give the little nods, the affirmations, the well-dones. That kind of way of working that we as teachers are so dependent on, actually, in terms of building relationships and enabling your students to know that they they are everything. As an educator, and you are on their side... And you are with them. And it's not that you you don't feel those things on a screen or at the front of the classroom, but your ability to convey those really important 
aspect of your practice so that your children understand and feel them is lost. And this is where we get onto the multi-layered nature of this research, because, of course, what we had going on then is that either we had pupils at home and, and so teachers were struggling to assess them in a really rich way or they were in school but they they were very restricted in what they could do weren't they you know they were they were sitting in rows the teacher was stuck sometimes literally behind a line um, drawn on the floor and so as as Alex puts it there was a hollowing out there was a real kind of thinning out of what was possible and in that environment were a bunch of student teachers who were getting their kind of one and only year of experiencing with a mentor how to do teaching in all its its kind of richness and variety and they weren't getting that richness and variety. Yeah, a- absolutely and that changed over time you know I think when we think back to what it was like in the pandemic with hindsight we know how it worked out. At the time we didn't know what was going to happen next. So from March to July 2020 when, when um, pupils were at home um, ITE students really didn't experience any assessment in the schools. Assessment was significantly disrupted and marginalised for the majority of learners in schools, so they couldn't have seen it. And actually, the concerns that we talked about, how do you meaningfully undertake assessment when you're not with learners? That was a problem. Um, so ITE students in that March to July 2020 period just experienced an extensive loss of access to that key area of educational practice. And then in September to mid-December 2020, the way that ITE moved things round to accommodate the pandemic meant that ITE students were not typically placed in schools. So whilst at that time, lots of schools were making a real concerted effort to understand, to evaluate what this impact of lockdown had been on learners, where the learning loss was, or where even learners may have made gains because they'd done huge amounts at home, IT students weren't part of that. But what, what we did find from the interviews was going on in schools at that time seemed to be an overemphasis on assessment, on summative assessment, which seems to be an unintended consequence of this care um, schools had to know where their learners were. And, and whilst anecdotal, there seems to be strong evidence talking to schools across the country that that dominance around assessment is ongoing because the level of variation in pupils' as a consequence of the pandemic, um, has broadened substantially. And so there is a constant desire to really understand where your learners are now and, and how, do you, how do you narrow those gaps? How do you support the learning loss, if that's how you want to term it? I know that's not a popular way of talking about it. But how do you really deal with that on an individual basis? And so teachers are talking about being in year five, and whereas previously they might have had a, an ability range that spanned a couple of years, we're spanning many, many more year groups now. And so that presents a real challenge. And I think one of the things that Alex has said and, and is so important when you think about the, the ITE students themselves was that they equally were significantly impacted. And again, those students who were most vulnerable were typically most severely impacted. So if they were 
ill or if they had had to miss learning days or if they had to self-isolate or if they had existing conditions or, or reasons for why they might be perceived as within an, a vulnerable group, that was exacerbated by the pandemic. And so w- one of the things we, we, we learnt was that their experiences were highly variable, not only because each individual is different, but of course every school within which they're placed in is different. And every school had to respond, had to respond to the pandemic differently because of their cohort of children and their community. And so those responses will have played out in a way that would have been different for every student. And so what they were missing and indeed continue to miss out is very hard to quantify in a generalisable way. And and I think that's particularly true as students went back then after that mid-December 2020 to to mid-March 2021 period because some students had much longer virtual placements at that stage than others. Some students were able to have some contact with their classes, others were not. The intensification that was going on still in terms of assessment in school, you know, this to understand where learners were and and to form catch-up, meant that sometimes ITE students were learning in changed context where there might have been fewer opportunities for them to initiate, for them to undertake assessment practices themselves because they were perceived as so important. It isn't something we'd hand over to an ITE student. And of course then amidst all of that variability of experience of the ITE students, they too were being assessed. They too had standards that they needed to demonstrate, that they needed to work towards, and and they needed practical experience to be able to do that. But of course, they were denied that in different ways for the two cohorts. So what did your research find about the sort of variability and the different approaches um, and, and what the consequences were for the assessment of student teachers themselves in that context? Okay, thinking specifically, first of all, about the the 2020-21 cohort, their experience was dominated really by a front-loaded teacher education model. And what we know about that is that that's not in keeping with what we know as being the most effective way to run ITE, which is why lots of the ITE reform has meant that programmes have been reshaped to be much more learning alongside right the way through those programmes. That was forced upon everybody. We had no choice, but that was that was a reality of what happened. Then we've talked about this idea of teaching from the front and teaching behind the line and that having lasting implications. Because if that's what you learn, if that's the context within which you learn to teach, and in fact, in many schools across Wales, restrictions around social distancing and mask wearing are still in place we will have cohorts of teachers who have never experienced anything different. So I will come to the assessment question now, Emma, but I think the reality of that, the more you think about it, is does that become normal practice? And what are the frames of reference for that not being normal practice? Because everybody in the school is doing it, not just the newly qualified teachers, everybody's doing it. So there will have been changed opportunities in terms of assessment, 
And there were real concerns articulated about the limited opportunities these student teachers had to engage in typical assessment activities, partly because they weren't happening or partly because they were so high stakes for GCSE and A-level classes in particular that school teachers, established school teachers and head teachers and mentors and ITU coordinators weren't going to take the risk. And you understand that. These were children's educations and children's qualifications that were at stake. And so many, many teachers and schools told us that at that time, their students didn't have those opportunities. And similarly, all of the things before COVID, if you look at lots of data around ITE provision and experiences, students will tell you, um, school-based educators will tell you, what's the hardest area to deal with in terms of the professional standards assessment? That was always difficult. And now it was even more difficult. You know, what happened in terms of school reports? What happened in terms of parents' evenings? What happened in terms of the different ways in which you can make judgments, make assessments? And, and again, both assessments around well-being and assessments around attainment and achievement. So that was hugely impacted. And it would have been impacted in different ways depending on what cohort you were in what partnership you were part of and their ways of working. And we had schools, we interviewed colleagues in schools that had students from many partnerships, sometimes three partnerships simultaneously, all experiencing slightly different things because of the demands of their partnerships as well in those ways of working. It depended whether you were an undergraduate or a postgraduate doing your training. So things were really complex. And I think that for me is the bit that has stayed with me in in terms of trying to understand where we are now is it's different it's different for different individuals yeah and I think certainly there are so many layers of complexity I wanted to spare a thought for HEI's delivering initial teacher education in Wales and just think about the amount of educational policy change that's going on in the backdrop, not least the kind of new partnership working arrangements that were established between HEIs and schools, working in partnership, um, a new emphasis on research-informed practice, and the fundamental shift in how professional standards were conceived, um, described and measured that had gone on, moving from that kind of threshold competence model to a more process-orientated professional learning model some might see standards as perhaps more woolly and difficult to work with at this difficult time anyway. So there was a real complexity in the backdrop that people in IT institutions were navigating. And I think the other thing that is particularly important around student experience is that teachers, students and IT educators were all of the view when we looked at our data the teaching online was not equivalent to teaching in a physical classroom, physically being with the children or the pupils. And so it couldn't be regarded as an adequate replacement. And it did inevitably impact how students learned, how students felt about their learning and their own self-perceptions around some of that. And we've got a really striking quote from one of our interviewees that I think is really interesting here. If you think about the quality and consistency of pedagogical practice, which was varied before this, I'm going to go out, not even on a limb, I don't think controversially, and say I think that the gulf is massive between schools who can and are able to do this and schools who just haven't got a clue. So I think the danger 
is that to train people to teach online properly takes a huge amount of time. And would you be doing that in expense of actual classroom practice that is traditionally taught? And you know, fingers crossed, this is not something that will continue. And it's kind of, what do you want them to be? Do you want them to be good online teachers and be a whiz at doing a webinar? Or do you want them to be good classroom practitioners? Because they're different things. And it's where do you put your emphasis? I think I would probably argue that the emphasis needs to be on classroom practice because that's probably where they want to be. And that's what they're going to do for the rest of their career. And I think what's striking for me about that is that interview um, happened in the, in the autumn of 2020. And here we are, 15 months on, and we all hoped it was going to have gone away. And it hasn't still quite gone away yet. So the legacy of this and the longer term implications, I think, are really important and significant in terms of what this means for beginning teachers and indeed their pupils. Massively struck a chord with me, that quote. Um, And I would say probably matches all of the fears that Tom and I voiced as IT providers ourselves in that autumn 2020 period when we were getting ready with our our fantastic school colleagues, co-constructing what that programme would look like in a world that we just didn't know how it was going to pan out. Um, So it really struck a chord with us, Tom, didn't it, from an IT provider perspective? It really did. And I mean, I know that the IPDA is all about the uncomfortable questions. So let's let's go with one now. I feel that the, the picture that's been painted here, we know that COVID has been a hugely traumatic event internationally, you know, and not just in the education field. But looking looking specifically in our own world here, we've got, going from, from bottom to top, I suppose might be one way to put it, we've got pupils who've been stuck at home and have had a very unequal experience and a very difficult experience in many cases. You've got teachers who have lost a certain amount of confidence by the sound of it because they're desperately trying to find out how their pupils are doing all the time and so they're they're choosing these forms of assessment which which give them what I could call a bit of a comfort blanket I suppose rather than taking the slightly harder types of assessment that that require a bit more confidence that that everything's okay you know teachers are feeling that everything's not okay You've got a bunch of student teachers and new members of the profession who, you know, your researchers said they're very aware that they had a very difficult time coming into the profession and they missed out on things. And then to add another layer on top of that, as Alex was explaining very clearly a moment ago, we've got a very moving picture in terms of reforms, in terms of a new curriculum, which is imminently supposed to come into place. Is this all going to resolve itself by itself? Or do we need to put some sort of proactive thing in place which is going to help get us out of this slightly uncomfortable place? Great question, Tom. (laughs) Um, I I think my view is that um, absolutely everybody is making an effort to consider all of these things. That's what we do as educators. However... Everybody's making a a concerted effort and Welsh Government have have provided opportunities for qualifying teachers to have extended experiences where they haven't got jobs. Schools are really trying to think about their practices with their pupils. 
But the legacy of this is set to run. And it's set to run because of the, the multi-layered complexity that we're, just, that we're talking about. And so, yes, I think there is a need to take a moment to think about what we're asking of the profession and what we're asking of the profession to do within the current context. And I think sometimes in some of my conversations with enormously committed teachers and schools dedicated to their pupils, there's also still a narrative of surviving, of getting through each day. There's still a level of isolation in schools because it's only very recently staff rooms have started to become staff rooms again. So staff don't see each other to talk, to work together and collaborate in the same ways as they used to. And we're out of practice of doing that. And there's a relief when you see your, your teachers to, to be able just to have a normal conversation. So if we think about those contexts and we think about what perhaps has been lost, there is a real need to stop and take stock and to say, yes, we know we've got to do the day job and business as usual and moving forward and keeping going and keeping the train on the track. But we also need to deeply understand what has been lost so that we can do additional things to support and put these things right. And that will take time and that will take commitment at every layer, in my view, of, of the educational world within Wales. I think there's responsibility at every level. And whilst we are enormously committed, rightly so, to the ambitious reform agenda we have in Wales for all sorts of reasons, we also want it to be successful. And we are building something potentially are not firm foundations or certainly not foundations that were as strong as they were two years ago. And I think that's fair to say. I'm struck by your use of the words surviving day to day. I mean, we've got a new curriculum coming in in just a few months where teachers are curriculum designers, where schools work on the concept of subsidiarity, where they have the confidence to create their own locally relevant curriculum and where teachers are confident to get out of their comfort zone and make connections between subject disciplines. I mean, is that is that the thing you do when you're surviving day to day? I I personally think it's it's a tall order at the current time. I think we've got to say we are where we are. What can we do to help? What would I want if I was an NQT? Knowing what I know about the literature on professional learning, if I walked in the shoes of an NQT right now, I'd want support that was sustained, that was flexible, and uh, was responsive and individually tailored to me in some way, because we talked about the variability in experiences that NQTs have had that responded to the specific context that I was working in. So I could have support from school-based colleagues with expertise in teacher education and professional learning from beginning teachers to support me in a safe environment where I could be very honest about what I felt I knew, what I felt I didn't know, and to have those risky conversations with, because gosh, they're risky at the start of your career when you haven't got a permanent contract. But if you don't have and privilege those honest and reflective conversations, how do you ever have time? If you don't say it in words, how do you know where you are and what you think and where you're going? And I don't think those would be bad conversations to privilege across the profession, if I'm honest, at this time, if we want to realise those aims. Something um, that struck me in a very recent 
top quality seminar that you two delivered to us at Cardiff Met about inquiry recently was about the use of inquiry as a as a way of sort of bringing to light some of those uncomfortable things that we sometimes have to lean into as teachers and as teacher educators and anyone in the education profession rather than follow a sense of bias and, and be led by that and, and, and be convinced that what we're doing is working when it's not. Could you just bring to the fore maybe some of the difference in opinion that we've got to lean into, Tom and I as teacher educators and, and in the world of teacher education that will be important for our listeners to know? I, th- I think one of the things, one of the real issues for the IT students at Learners was how they went about evidencing their experiences to place them against different professional standards. And it was clear that there was some lack of clarity for them as to exactly the amount of evidence that they needed. Some of them reported, well, I just didn't know how much was right, so I put 27 things against against one particular <laughs> standard. I didn't want to take any risks. They're very conscientious, clearly, and had plenty of evidence to, to, to present. But there was something in there and in those conversations about shared understanding of what was required for them, what was required to evidence the standards, and even a shared understanding of perhaps how those standards are used to support the professional growth of ITE students. And it's perhaps not surprising because there is this move over, as I said before, um, away from a a threshold competence model. And, And there are complexities that come with that. And that was inevitably cut short by the pandemic. So I think perhaps a useful focus and thinking together about that could be really productive for everyone. The other thing that was um, a really interesting finding, I guess, from our report was we asked teacher educators, both higher education-based teacher educators and school-based teacher educators, to think about all the ways in which student teachers were assessed in the programme and whether they would say that for typical students, and um, we've already said it's hard to define what a typical student is, but let's go with it. For typical students affected by COVID-19 related adjustments, were their final qualification outcomes just as valid as they'd been in previous cohorts, less valid or more valid? And we had a, a, a strong response to that question nationally. So this is Pan Wales, 158 responses specifically to this, and two of each type, higher education-based teacher educator and school-based teacher educator, felt that they might be more valid. That was all. A reasonable number felt that they were just as valid. More school-based teacher educators felt just as valid. But what was illuminating and of concern was that there were a greater proportion of school-based teacher educators who felt those qualifications were probably less valid. And what was striking from this question overall was that higher education-based teacher educators were more positive around the validity of the qualification than school-based teacher educators were. 
And I think there's a number of complex reasons for that. And I know the, the, the next podcast is going to go into some of this in much more detail in terms of your views and interpretations. But I, I think for us as a research team, it was a moment where we kind of went, ooh, there's something we really need to think about here. Hang on a second. What's going on? And, and I guess the other thing that might be really worth stopping and, and thinking about, because we're all at, we are where we are, peddling very fast to keep going. But an opportunity for schools to kind of stop and examine their own very necessary pandemic-related changes to assessment practices in a way that lets them consider how what they have now in terms of assessment in schools aligns with their values in terms of pupils' education. Because where schools are engaged in teacher education, teachers' professional formation, that's what they're seeing. That's the reality for these teachers. They've, they've, these student teachers have seen nothing else. And I think it's very easy in all kinds of practice to slip into a way of working for very good reasons, for very necessary reasons, but then not to have the opportunity to stop and measure them against what we really believe and want for our learners. So a really interesting, really multi-layered, multi-faceted report and I've read it and it was a, an interesting read. It had a number of interesting turns of phrase, which I found particularly memorable. So where can someone go if they want to have a read of this? The honest answer, Tom, is that colleagues are very welcome to email me and I can and share my email with you and, and via the podcast if that's the most appropriate way. Welsh Government accepted the report back in August, but it seems a little perplexing that it's not publicly available. And we, we are promised that it's on its way, but it seems to have been on its way for a very long time. So Welsh Government are aware and know that the report has been and will continue to be shared should colleagues want to see it, both at schools, ITE institutions, um, internationally, because we presented at the International Professional Development Association International Conference last November. But unfortunately, it's not accessible as a downloadable report or, or available to read online currently. In the spirit of what I said earlier on, and without wanting to put you too much on the spot, why do you think that is? Um, I, um, my feeling is that there's a tremendous level of depth in this report and a range of views from stakeholders across Wales, and not just a handful, 40 in-depth interviews, 465 responses to the questionnaire. So there's a significant amount of data in this report, and much of it is built around the findings from, from what colleagues said, but actually they're direct quotes, they're words, of what was really going on. Not what we think was going on, not what makes us feel more comfortable about what was going on, but what was really going on. And it does make tricky reading sometimes and leaves you a little bit preoccupied and wondering, coming back to Tom's question earlier, I've been mulling it over since you asked it, Tom, are we in a position right here, right now, to be curriculum makers, ready to go in six months' time for primary? I think that's a big challenge. And I think teachers are feeling anxious about that in terms of wanting to do the right thing for their learners 
given what they know everybody has experienced within education in Wales over the last two years. And I guess for me, what we would probably see, and this is me speculating, is that the gap in terms of the schools that are ready and feel confident about this and the schools that are pretty terrified has got bigger in the same way as variation for pupils and variation in schools has got bigger. I suspect preparedness for the new curriculum has got great, uh, that, that variation has got greater. And I wonder whether this is the right time to be expecting even more of our educators and even more of our learners to adapt to something that will be new and unfamiliar and whilst aspirationally better, is this where we need to be going at this particular moment in time? Professor Emma Jane Milton, Dr Alex Morgan, thank you very much for giving us so much to chew over in this first of our double bill of this podcast episode. We will be back and hopefully you will listen to the adjacent episode where we will be giving you some insights and how we responded to the epic research that you carried out um, and what it means for us going forward uh, as a partnership. So thank you for your time. Um, I hope you'll be back again to join us in our our face-to-face podcast studio. Stay safe and well, and uh, we'll be back in your ears very soon. And just before the credits roll, a little postscript to this episode. About three weeks after the recording was made, the report finally appeared on the Welsh Government website, and you can find a link to it in the show notes. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guests this episode were the newly minted Professor Emma Jane Milton and Dr Alex Morgan from Cardiff University. Thanks to them for taking part. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. You can find the IPDA at ipda.org.uk and us at Talk Teaching Pod on Twitter. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Thank you.